ARE Study Guide Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the ARE Study Guide Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about materials. So, as I say that, I realize pretty much everything is a material. So, I guess that goes without saying that this is going to be kind of a big episode. We're going to cover a lot. Our material selection plays a huge part in how sustainable our buildings are. So, we're going to also look at what makes a material sustainable, and that directly ties into the life cycle analysis. All right, so let's dive in. So let's talk about our building envelope. One of the major reasons architects get sued is due to moisture issues and the related water damage. A rain screen is an exterior wall assembly where the wall cladding is separated from the wall with an air cavity. In a non-rain screen envelope, moisture can enter through the wall through capillary action. Capillary action is the upward movement of water To quickly see how capillary action works in real life, if you took a glass of water and put a paper towel inside the glass, you would watch the water go up the paper towel. That is an example of capillary action. That same thing happens on our building envelope. So a rain screen separates the exterior cladding from the bearing wall with a cavity, and this allows for a capillary break. That allows for the moisture to go through the cladding, but then it can drip back down before it gets to the building wall. A vapor barrier is a thin piece of plastic that blocks air and water vapor. So a vapor barrier is going to go around our exterior envelope. You always put the vapor barrier on the warm side of the insulation. So in a cool climate, the inside of the building is going to be warmer than the outside, so you would place the vapor barrier on the inside face of the insulation closer to the interior of the building. In warm climates, the exterior is going to be warmer than the interior most of the time, so you'll put the vapor barrier on the outside of the insulation closer to the cladding. That is really really important to remember, the vapor barrier always goes on the warm side of the insulation. And keep in mind that insulation typically goes between the studs. It depends what kind of construction you have, but if you have a stud construction, insulation is typically going to go in between the studs. So you can think of the vapor barrier going on the warm side of the framing. All right, so let's talk about insulation. So there are many types of insulation, but some of the most common ones are bats, which it's that fluffy pink stuff typically. And that pink stuff, it can be other colors, but I always think of the pink insulation. That's fiberglass. Or you can also have mineral wool bats. Uh, But the most common stuff, the stuff that makes you feel all itchy if you ever touch it, that's fiberglass. Um, Fiberglass bats are made with recycled glass content typically 30 to 90% 
of the content is recycled materials. Traditionally, fiberglass bats are made with formaldehyde, but you can find formaldehyde-free bats. Rigid foam insulation is petroleum-based. For rigid foam, we have three major types. We have EPS, which is basically styrofoam. Uh, EPS is versatile. You can use it in walls, roofs, floors, and below grade. With EPS, the R value will not reduce over time. With XPS, you can use in walls or below grade. Um, but over time, XPS has been shown to retain moisture, so its R value will be reduced over time. And then there's polyiso, or just iso, and you can use that for roofs, walls, and ceilings. It's most commonly used for low-sloped commercial roofs. There's spray foam insulation. Spray foam has a very high R value. With many other types of insulation, when we install it, we won't completely fill the cavity and there'll be a gap reducing the overall R value of our assembly. With spray foam, every crevice is sealed and we get a much higher R value. There are two types of spray foam, closed cell and open cell. Closed cell is more dense and has a higher R value, but it contains ingredients typically that deplete the ozone. Open cell is less dense and has a lower R value, but it's better for the environment. We also have blown in or poured insulation, which can be loose or dense filled. This is when you add a material like uh, cellulose, which is recycled newspaper, or cotton made from recycled denim, and you can either blow these materials into your cavity or pour them in. Loose fill insulation will settle and have an airspace at the top of the cavity that will reduce the assembly's R value. Dense filled will fill the entire cavity. Installing an air barrier will help increase the effectiveness of your insulation. When you use an air barrier and a vapor barrier, the air barrier needs to be at least 10 to 20 times more permeable than the vapor barrier because you cannot have two impermeable layers where moisture could get trapped. The air barrier needs to be less permeable so that moisture can escape. There should only be one point in your assembly where moisture gets stopped. Other than that, the wall needs to breathe on either side of your vapor barrier. A radiant barrier is a reflective sheet of material, typically aluminum foil, that's placed on the outside of the insulation with a one inch air gap between the radiant barrier and the sheathing. If you don't have that gap, your radiant barrier will not be effective. Radiant barriers reflect the radiant heat. It's mostly used in attics to reduce the summer heat gains. EFIS systems or exterior insulation and finish systems are non-load bearing exterior wall cladding systems. Basically, an EFIS, it's E-I-F-S, is going to be a rigid board of insulation with a polymer finish coat, basically a stucco coating over rigid board insulation. So for your exam, for project planning and design and project development documentation, you need to consider heat transfer. I don't know off the top of my head how much might be on project planning and design, 
or if this is more for project development documentation, but look at the formulas in the back of the ARE handbook and you will see a formula for the heat transfer through a wall assembly. The formula can be used for any assembly, but typically we're thinking about the heat transfer through our exterior walls. And so the formula is heat flow equals the coefficient of heat transmission times the wall area times the difference in temperature on either side of the assembly. So if you're looking at the formula, you will see that it says BTUs per hour. That's the heat flow, that's the rate of heat flow per hour. So BTUs per hour is the rate of heat flow. U is the coefficient of transmission. A is the total wall area, the surface area, times the temperature difference on either side of the wall. Roofing. The pitch of a roof is the slope of a roof. It's going to always be expressed as rise over run. The run is always expressed as 12 inches. Every roof needs to be sloped. Even a flat roof should have a slope of a quarter inch per 12 inches. In cold climates, we need a double layer of underlayment known as an ice dam. An ice dam extends from the eave 24 inches inwards. This prevents ice from forming along the edge of our roof. Ponding is when pools of water occur on a flat roof. Ponding that lasts over 48 hours, so more than two days, is cause for concern. So it's normal for some water to stay on a roof after it rains. For a flat roof, it might take a little while for that water to drain off. If water is on your roof for more than 48 hours, that's a problem. Flashing. Flashing is a piece of metal that prevents water from penetrating. Flashing is required at the bottom of walls where walls and roofs meet, above wood trim, at the top, sides, and bottoms of openings, such as doors and windows, along any openings in our roof, at the edge of decks, porches, balconies, meeting a building facade, at the bottom of wall cavities or pockets to help water drain out of the cavity, anytime the roof changes slope or direction, and along gutters. All right, so now we are going to talk about interior materials. And in doing so, we're just gonna talk about the sustainable properties of materials so that we know how to wisely choose which materials we put inside our building. VOCs, volatile organic compounds, are compounds that contain carbon and hydrogen that vaporize at room temperature. VOCs can become airborne anytime a material is applied or installed or sometimes for the entire life of that product. VOCs reduce our indoor air quality and create health risk for our building occupants. So we want to always choose materials that have a low VOC content. Materials that are typically high in VOCs include paints, stains, carpet, composite wood, furniture, sealant, adhesives. A health product declaration, HPD, health product declaration, is a specification standard that reports a product's content and the associated health information for the contents. 
When we consider materials, we need to consider the product's life cycle. There are several ways to consider the life cycle. You can consider the cradle to gate. Cradle means the point that a product was extracted, that the materials for the product were extracted is the cradle. Cradle to gate is the product's life from the moment that the material was extracted to the point it reaches the factory gate. That means right before it's delivered to the consumer or to the store where it will be sold for the consumer. Cradle to gate. Extraction to factory gate. Cradle to grave is from extraction through its use to the disposal at the end of its use. Grave, when the product is completely done being used by the consumer. Cradle to cradle. Cradle to cradle is a sustainable concept for products where you consider the extraction of the materials to create the product and then the ability for this product to be reused in another way at the end of its first useful life. Embodied energy. Embodied energy is the energy consumed by all of the processes associated with material product or an entire building. Embodied energy includes all the energy required to extract, manufacture, and transport our products and materials. You can consider the embodied energy for a specific product or material or your entire building. You could think about all the energy that was needed to make your building. A life cycle assessment evaluates the environmental impact of a product over the course of the product life. A life cycle assessment considers each material that was used to create the product. A life cycle assessment includes everything related to that product, including the extraction of the materials, manufacturing the product, transporting the product and materials that were used to create it, the life of the product when it's being used and maintained, how much maintenance does it require, what's required to install or use the product, and then at the end, how do you dispose of or recycle the product? So a life cycle assessment evaluates the environmental impact over a product's entire life. You can do a life cycle assessment for a whole building. So just like with a product, you consider the moment that the materials were extracted, transported, and then when the product's being used, how much energy it's taking, and then how you recycle the product at the end. You can do that same thing with your building. You can think about everything from the pre-construction activities, the construction, the operation of your building, and then at the end of the building's life, how that building can get repurposed or how it gets demolished in a way that the building components can get recycled. When trying to make sustainable material choices, some things to look for include Look for renewable materials. Renewable materials are materials that can regrow relatively quickly, such as bamboo, cork, wool, straw, linoleum, and sunflower seed board. Products that contain recycled content. Recycled content can either be post-consumer, which is when a material has been used by a consumer and then it can be reused in another, another way, such as when we recycle our materials at our homes, we get rid of our paper, glass, and plastic and that materials reused, that's post-consumer or pre-consumer, which is waste materials that were generated during manufacturing processes, such as using fly ash in our concrete or sawdust for composite wood products. 
always source local materials when possible. This will reduce the pollution generated by transportation and help promote the local economy. Salvage materials are materials that were taken from the demolition or remodel of one building to be reused on a different building. Always choose low VOC materials. Bio-based materials are materials made from living matter. And recovered materials are waste materials and byproducts recovered or diverted from waste disposal. Wood. Our buildings use a lot of wood and thus have a huge role in deforestation. When sourcing wood, it's important that we specify FSC wood. FSC stands for the Forest Stewardship Council. FSC wood is wood that is taken from a source that is responsibly managed. FSC wood not only helps to mitigate the effects of deforestation on the environment, but also helps local communities. ECC, Eco-Certified Composite Sustainability Standard, evaluates the sustainability of manufactured composite woods. The CRI Green Label Plus is a certification by the Carpet and Rug Institute. This certification is for carpets, floor adhesives, and cushions that are made from low VOC emitting materials. Floor Score is a certification for hard surface flooring and flooring adhesives that designate the materials meet strict indoor air quality requirements. Paint. Paint can be solvent-based, which is typically for exterior use. It's able to resist scratches. It can stand up against temperature swings, and it also has a high VOC content. An example of a solvent-based paint is oil paint. Water-based paint is used for interior purposes, and it has a low VOC content. An example is latex paint. Acrylic latex paint is better than vinyl latex paint. When selecting furniture, the most sustainable options are going to be finding used furniture, refurbishing or repurposing furniture, specifying furniture that's made from sustainable materials, and selecting durable, low-maintenance furniture. A huge part of sustainability is the durability. You could find something that's perfectly sustainable in all other senses, but if it only lasts a year and you have to buy something new, that's not very sustainable. Okay, so that is probably way more than you need to know on a lot of things. It's not everything you need to know about materials. If you are preparing for a project planning and design right now, I highly recommend you check out all of the previous episodes that were about programming and analysis. Most of that content applies for this exam as well. There's a lot of overlap between the two tests. And this concludes our series on project planning and design. I had originally planned on going to project development and documentation. Um, I unfortunately did not pass that test yet. So we are going to go to construction and evaluation next and circle back to project development and documentation at the end of the podcast series. Happy studying. Good luck, everyone. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out at arestudyguidepodcast.com. Until next time, bye.